On many lists of the most memorable and exciting moments in baseball history, the so-called shot heard around the world often ranks in the top 10, even the top five. The shot heard around the world occurred in 1951 when New York giant Bobby Thompson hit a three-run, walk-off home run in the bottom of the ninth against the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was the third and deciding game of a division playoff, and the New York Giants were losing 4-2, to two, with one out and two runners on base. As has often happened in great moments in sports, everything came down to a few improbable seconds, and two men, the batter and the pitcher. Dodgers pitcher Ralph Branca knew the odds were in his favor. After all, the greatest of hitters only ever scored a base hit a third of the time. A thousand scenarios would lead to the end of the inning and the Dodgers winning the playoff, while only a handful of scenarios would lead to the opposite. Branca wound up. He delivered a fastball to the plate, which Bobby Thompson took for a strike. Branca knew that Thompson's weak spot was high and inside, so he threw his second pitch, a fastball, high and inside, and Bobby Thompson hit the ball out of the park. It was a spectacular moment, a one-of-a-kind, inspiring moment, a moment that likely occurred because Bobby Thompson and his New York Giants had cheated. In today's episode, we'll explore the shot heard around the world, the culture of cheating in baseball, and the most illegal example of sign-stealing that has ever occurred, and it happened only five years ago. Finally, we'll explore the question, when is it okay to cheat? And when is it okay, if ever, to lie about cheating? You're listening to the Midnight Library of Baseball, where there are no loud noises, no jarring music, only nostalgic, thought-provoking, emotional stories about baseball. I'm Ben Orlando. If this were not a quiet, relaxing nighttime show, I would play for you the broadcast from announcer Russ Hodges during the shot heard around the world, considered one of the most famous calls in sports history. If you're interested, you can go to our website and find a link to the clip. Instead, I'll read Russ Hodge's call. Quote, Branca throws. There's a long drive. It's going to be, I believe, the Giants win the pennant. 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 Bobby Thompson hits into the lower deck of the left field stands. The Giants win the pennant. And they're going crazy. They're going crazy. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I do not believe it. Bobby Thompson hit a line drive into the lower deck of the left field stands, and this blame place is going crazy. The Giants. Horace Stoneham has got a winner. The Giants won it by a score of 5-4, to four, and they're picking Bobby Thompson up and carrying him off the field. End quote. What's amazing about this recording is that we have it at all. It may be hard to believe in an age where we tend to record everything, 
but in 1951, sports broadcasts were typically not recorded. The only reason we have this famous play-by-play is that a Giants fan named Lawrence Goldberg asked his mother to tape the last inning while he was at work. From Bobby Thompson in a 2006 interview, quote, I remember kind of hyperventilating as I floated around the bases. I knew what I had done, but it was just too amazing to believe. I went around third, came toward home, and made one last big leap onto the plate and into my teammates' arms. Soon enough, I was on top of Whitney Lockman's shoulders, and there were people swarming all around us. It was so loud for so long. It was an incredible roar that just lasted and lasted. End quote. And this from the man who delivered the pitch, Ralph Branca. Quote, All I could say was, sink, sink, sink. But I knew it was gone all the way. I was a good pitcher, but I was only known for throwing Thompson that home run pitch. That gave me notoriety. People say I became famous, but I say I became infamous. End quote. In terms of stakes, it could not have been much higher. Baseball was the national pastime. World War II had ended, and it was boom time in America. Time to focus on home, on work, on family, and time to focus on the teams you love to watch. And although this wasn't the World Series, it was a playoff in New York, the epicenter of American baseball, with two New York teams vying for dominance. The Giants and Dodgers had tied at the end of the season, and now they were tied again, one game apiece. This moment is what makes baseball so special and separate from other sports. When you think of football and basketball and hockey, there is no slow, mounting rise of tension like in baseball. In baseball, the tension can mount and mount and build until pop. Whereas other sports are action films, baseball is a psychological thriller. At the same time, we have an asterisk next to the moment, because years later, Giants catcher Sal Yavarez admitted that he signaled Branca's pitch to Bobby Thompson from the bullpen. In other words, according to Yavarez, Bobby Thompson knew a fastball was coming. Bobby Thompson had cheated. To understand the cheating, sign-stealing scandal of 1951, we need to understand the history of sign-stealing and cheating in baseball. According to Hall of Fame player and manager Rogers Hornsby, talking in 1961, quote, I've been in pro baseball since 1914, and I've cheated or watched someone on my team cheat in practically every game, end quote. In their book, Intentional Balk, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating, authors Daniel Levitt and Mark Armour created a doctrine based on Hornsby's philosophy. They called it the Hornsby Doctrine, which reads as follows, quote, Baseball players and others within the game will and should find ways to bend and break the rules. It is the job of the authorities to stop them, end quote. This doctrine is reinforced by former umpire Nestor Chilak, who said, quote, Ballplayers will cheat under any circumstance if they can get away with it. That's why we're out there. Our job is to prevent it, end quote. But not everyone agreed with the Hornsby doctrine. From Hall of Fame umpire Doug Harvey, quote, What makes me so angry is that owners, players, and managers go through all sorts of contortions to cheat their asses off, end quote. 
There are, of course, rules in the Major League Handbook. And, as Levitt and Armour explained, there are many unspoken rules. Things you can get away with, and things you just should not do. Pitch framing, for example, is a long-standing trick used by catchers at all levels. The definition of pitch framing is that when a catcher receives a pitch out of the strike zone, he will quickly move his glove back to the strike zone. It's a rapid maneuver and sometimes imperceptible to umpires. In other words, catchers can steal strikes this way. In 2019, it was determined that some of the best pitch framing catchers save their teams as many as 15 runs per season. There is no rule against pitch framing, but umpires don't like it and will scold catchers when they see it, if they see it. One of my favorite tricks I came across is from the legendary manager Connie Mack, but when he was a player. In the late 1800s, Mack played as a catcher, and during this time, foul tips could be caught for outs just like today, whether it's strike three or strike one. During the course of his career, Mack developed a clicking noise from his glove that sounded like a foul tip, so if a batter swung and missed, Mac would make his clicking sound, and not only would the umpire be fooled, so would the batter. Cheating and tricks were not solely confined to ballplayers and managers. Within the world of ballpark groundskeeping, there is a substantial subset of cheating. Famous and infamous owner Bill Veck took over the Cleveland Indians in the 1940s, and with Cleveland Stadium came head groundskeeper Emile Bassard whom Vec referred to as the Michelangelo of groundskeepers. Vec looked for every single angle to both draw in fans and win a game. And when Vec looked at his players in the field, he saw a thousand possibilities. For instance, his shortstop, Lou Boudreau, was slow but had good hands. So Vec had Emile Bassard keep the grass long and the dirt soft to slow the ball for Boudreau. But Joe Gordon, the second baseman, was quick. So just a few feet away, Bossard made sure the grass was short and the dirt hard. And a few feet more to the left, you had third baseman Ken Keitner, who had bad knees. So Bossard made sure the dirt was soggy. These strategies worked both ways, as sometimes groundskeepers were told to make a change to sabotage the opposing team, which was the case in 1962. Here we have the Dodgers and Giants again, and another three-game playoff, except now we have the Los Angeles Dodgers and the San Francisco Giants. But before the playoff is when the hijinks began. In 1962, the Dodgers had the fastest team in the major leagues, with twice as many stolen bases as the next highest total. Meanwhile, the San Francisco Giants saw their playoff hopes dwindling with only a few games left in the season and an upcoming series against the number one Dodgers. Giants manager Alvin Dark paid a visit to groundskeeper Matty Schwab, and he asked Schwab if there was any way to slow down the speedy Dodgers. Schwab's response? Absolutely. Matty Schwab and his son got to work digging up the area off first base where the runners take their lead. They dug up the existing soil and replaced it with a combination of sand, peat moss, and water and then added a layer of camouflage normal dirt on top. Before the game, as the players practiced, the Dodgers noticed the strange soil immediately. They complained to the umpires, who told the Giants to fix the base path. Well, Matty Schwab and his son dug up the swamp, hauled off the soggy dirt and wheelbarrows, 
and then brazenly replaced it with the same soggy, loose dirt. And somehow the umpires didn't notice that it was the same. So the swamp remained. And for that whole weekend series, the Dodgers attempted only one stolen base. The Giants came back and tied the Dodgers in the last game and went on to win the playoff and came within one game of winning the World Series. And for his efforts, groundskeeper Matty Schwab was awarded a full share of the World Series prize money, $7,290, around $75,000 today. And of course, we have sign stealing, which is linked to our original story, The Shot Heard Round the World. But why steal signs? Well, many people say the hardest thing to do in sports is hit a baseball. Hitters have to consider location, speed, how the ball might break, and then they have to start their stride and their swing to make contact. And they have to do all of this in less than 0.4 seconds. How long is 0.4 seconds? Well, I have a stopwatch here. I'm going to say start at zero and stop at 0.4. Ready? Start, stop. That was it. Just to note, I had to do this a few times to get it right. But that's not a lot of times to make all these decisions and send the right signals to the right parts of your body. You can imagine how tempting it would be to get an edge. It's also important to understand the role of the catcher. Like a conductor in a symphony, the catcher is the ringleader on the field. The catcher knows where everyone is, the strengths and weaknesses of each hitter and player, and most of the time the catcher decides what pitch the pitcher will throw. And each catcher and pitcher have a series of hand signals worked out. If the opposing team can break the code of these signals, they would know ahead of time what pitch is coming. If you know for certain that the pitcher is going to throw a fastball, you have an enormous edge, but still no guarantee. If you go watch the home run derby during the All-Star game, you'll see pitchers trying to deliver slow, easy pitches exactly where the hitter wants the ball. And still, the best of the best hitters in Major League Baseball miss a home run a lot of the time. But again, if you know what pitch is coming, your odds increase significantly. All the way back in 1899, the Philadelphia Phillies devised a sign-stealing strategy involving an expensive pair of binoculars, an electronic buzzer, and a lot of hiding. The plan was imagined by backup catcher Morgan Murphy, who in his first season of cheating, hit out in the manager's center field suite with his binoculars, watching the catcher signals to the pitcher of the opposing team. Murphy would then motion on the left side of the suite's window for a breaking ball, and motion on the right side for a fastball. The cheating proved so effective that the Phillies, who had 78 wins the year before, finished the 1899 season with 94 wins. And Murphy, who did not play one single game, was carried through to the next season, where he devised an electronic buzzer under the third base coaching box. Murphy would literally telegraph a code for the pitch to the buzzer under the third base coach's foot and the third base coach would relay the pitch via hand signals to the batter. At the time, there was nothing illegal about Murphy's strategy, but it was frowned upon, and when the ruse was discovered, the baseball world cried foul. The Phillies eventually gave up this strategy, but despite the frowning, teams continued to find different ways to steal signs. 
1951 and the New York Giants and the shot heard around the world, there had already been dozens of examples of sign-stealing strategies. And for the most part, sign-stealing was deemed acceptable as long as you were not using technology to do so. In other words, if you decipher our signals, good for you. Then we'll change our signals, and the cat-and-mouse game will resume. According to historian James Elfers, there were two factors that led the New York Giants to capital C cheat in 1951. The first was manager Lou DeRocher, who was known to put winning above all things. The second factor was the polo grounds, which offered a perfect geography for stealing signs. During the 1951 season, an infielder named Henry Schentz transferred to the Giants. At some point, Schentz confessed to DeRocher that when Schentz played for the Chicago Cubs, it was his job to hide in the outfield scoreboard with a telescope and steal signs from opposing teams, including the Giants. Instead of being angry, DeRocher was delighted. The clubhouse at the polo grounds was situated in dead center field, perfect for spying on the catcher. Also at the polo grounds, the batter could look slightly right and see the men in the Giants' bullpen. There was a direct line of sight. The only problem, and it was a big problem, was figuring out how to relay a message from the clubhouse, where third base coach Herman Franks would do the spying, to the bullpen, where a man would relay those signals to the field. And again, because of the odd configuration of the polo grounds, hitters could simply look up and right and see the guys in the bullpen delivering the signals. And this is where an accepted practice shifts toward unacceptable. Because the solution was an electronic device, which was a no-no. It was a buzzer, just like the device used by the 1899 Philadelphia Phillies. And again, in this unspoken agreement, electronics crossed the line. But manager Leo DeRocher did not care. DeRocher brought in a member of the local International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers to lay the wire, and it was all set. At this point, the Giants were in third place, with a record of 47-41. and 41. After the cheating began, the Giants won 51 of the next 69 games, and finished tied with the Brooklyn Dodgers for first place. And, as we already know, in the deciding final game of the three-game playoff, down by two runs... In the bottom of the ninth, Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard round the world. But there's more to the story. For example, in game one of the playoffs, Bobby Thompson hit a two-run home run off, guess who, Ralph Branca, which helped the Giants win game one. Also, Thompson had a 14-game hitting streak coming into game three, and he'd already hit a single and double that game. Also in that ninth inning, as Bobby Thompson stepped to the plate, rookie Willie Mays stood in the on-deck circle. But Mays really, really did not want to bat because he was in a terrible slump. Bobby Thompson played from 1946 to 1960. He was 6'2", 180 pounds. Imagine a Long Island, aw shucks version of Liam Neeson. Thompson was a solid hitter, finishing his career with 264 home runs, good for 218th all-time, and an overall lifetime batting average of 270. In 1960, an injury put Thompson on the disabled list and allowed a young man named Henry Hank Aaron to get called up from the minor leagues. Until the day he died, 
Bobby Thompson swore he did not know what pitch Ralph Branca was going to throw. In 1954, three years after the shot heard around the world, Ralph Branca was traded to the Detroit Tigers, where he roomed with a guy who'd played on the 1951 Giants. And this roommate told Branca everything about the cheating, about the telescope, about the buzzer. A few days later, Branca phoned Sal Yavars to confirm, and Yavars confirmed everything. But Branca kept everything to himself, even while rumors began to spread around baseball, because Branca didn't want to seem like a sore loser. We have testimonials, but did the data actually back up the words? In other words, does the data show that the Giants were cheating? You would think, if the Giants were stealing signs and knew what pitches were coming, their overall batting average that season would have soared after they began implementing their scheme. But when Professor David Smith crunched the numbers, he found that the Giants hit just 256 at home after they implemented the scheme. And they actually hit better on the road with an average of 267. But, but, the one player whose batting average significantly improved after the electronic sign stealing was Bobby Thompson, whose batting average went from 241 before the cheating to 346 after the cheating. That is an incredible improvement. In 2001, reporter Josh Prager exposed the 1951 Giants cheating scandal in an article he wrote for the Wall Street Journal. In 2006, Prager published a book on the same topic, titled The Echoing Green. After Prager's story came out, Bobby Thompson, quote, said he felt as if he'd been released from prison, the burden of the secret scheme finally released, end quote. However, Thompson was referring to the overall cheating scandal and not what happened in the ninth inning against Ralph Branca. He still denied knowing anything about Branca's pitch and claimed that his hit, his shot heard round the world, was due to his skills alone. Remember the third base coach who did the spying, Herman Franks? Franks refused to talk with reporter Josh Prager, but right before he died, Herman Franks admitted to everything. And he added some new information. Franks said that after relaying each new signal, he'd lift the telescope so he could see if the batter at the plate was checking the bullpen for the sign. And he would know this if the batter's eyes shifted up and to the right toward the bullpen in right field. During the ninth inning of Game 3 in 1951, after delivering the sign for Branca's second pitch, Herman Franks said he lifted the telescope and watched as Bobby Thompson's eyes shifted up and to the right toward the bullpen. Ten years later, in 1961, the National League banned the use of electronic devices to steal signs. And it wasn't until 2001 that a major league memorandum was sent out stating that teams could not use electronic devices to steal signs. So finally, it was illegal to steal signs using electronics. Finally, there would be consequences beyond a foul word and a furrowed brow. Flash forward to 2017 and the Houston Astros World Series champions, who were, a few years later, found guilty of using video cameras to steal signs. The Astros were fined $5 million they lost their first and second round draft picks for 2020 and 2021, and the manager and general manager were suspended.
For the first time, there were actual consequences. Although many thought the punishment should have been worse, considering that the Astros used their cheating to get them to and through the World Series. But sign-stealing is only one of many gray areas in the world of baseball chicanery. Some of the most amusing and entertaining tricks in all sports involve sleight of hand, and the same is true with baseball. In 2018, Alex Verdugo hit a pop foul behind third base. Third baseman Todd Frazier ran toward the stands, reached over and in, and made a terrific catch, pulling himself out and showing the ball to the umpire to prove he caught it. But instant replay revealed that Frazier initially caught the ball, the ball fell out, and somehow there happened to be a souvenir baseball lying nearby. So Frazier grabbed the souvenir ball and held that up for the umpire to see. Which, to me, sounds even more impressive than making the initial catch. A year earlier, Todd Frazier was on the other end of a sleight-of-hand trick. Frazier was a runner on second base, and the second baseman received the ball from the outfield and pretended to throw the ball to the pitcher. Except he palmed the ball. So Frazier thought he was safe to step off the bag, and that's when the second baseman, Ryan Goins, tagged him out. This trick has happened enough, but not too often. Historians think possibly 300 times since the beginning of the major leagues. During the early 1900s, Tigers third baseman Bill Coughlin pulled off the trick nine times. And more recently, during the 1980s, Red Sox second baseman Marty Barrett pulled off the trick three times. And there was often a similar reaction. The player who got fooled was outraged, or just enraged, and most of the other players found it amusing. As technologies and cameras become more advanced, it gets harder and harder to cheat or trick. But Major League pitchers keep trying. Since the beginning of baseball, pitchers have found creative ways to make the ball move, from spitballs to rubbing the ball against concrete or emery boards, to using sticky substances that have only recently been banned. When you find a way to make your fingers more tacky, you can increase your grip, which leads to more ball spin and more movement. In 2021, the league began cracking down on these types of substances, and umpires began checking body parts, hats, shirts, etc. In 2022, umpires increased the frequency of their checks, often checking pitchers' hands after each inning. But even with all this scrutiny, spin rates are still up, and it's improbable, if not impossible, that all these increased spin rates have been achieved without substances. Right now, you might get yourself suspended a few games, but if you can pitch well for a few games, you can secure yourself millions of dollars. For a Major League Baseball player, it's a no-brainer. But what about after you're caught? What is the point of maintaining the lie? For Bobby Thompson, the shot heard around the world was an absolute life-changer. Of the moment, Thompson said, quote, It was the best thing that ever happened to me. It may have been the best thing that ever happened to anybody, end quote. And maintaining the lie would not have been only for Thompson. Thompson was an inspiration for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of children and adults. Inspiration to keep fighting, even if you find yourself in the bottom of the ninth inning. In the 1990s, Bobby Thompson received a letter from a man who'd been stationed in Korea in 1951. The man wrote this, quote, 
I was in a bunker in the front line with my buddy listening to the radio. It was contrary to orders, but he was a Giants fanatic. He never made it home, and I promised him if I ever got back, I'd write and tell you about the happiest moment of his life. It's taken me this long to put my feelings into words. On behalf of my buddy, thanks Bobby. End quote. So what does it mean for people like this man's friend, for this man, for children who were inspired, to then tell them it happened because of deception, dishonesty, unfairness? Is it more helpful overall to be complicit in a lie that brought joy and inspiration to so many? Or is truth, truth, that should come out? Ralph Branca, the infamous pitcher on the other end of the shot heard round the world, later called the Giants' scheme, quote, the most despicable act in the history of the game, end quote. And yet, Branca mostly kept the truth to himself. And for the next 50 years, Branca and Thompson traveled together, attended signings and social functions together, where they both recounted the famous moment again and again. If Ralph Branca had struck out Bobby Thompson in the ninth inning of Game 3, and then struck out the next batter to lead his Dodgers to the playoff win, he would have been celebrated at the time, but then, most likely, he would have been forgotten. But when Bobby Thompson hit the shot heard round the world, he lifted himself and Branca into the stratosphere of celebrated historical baseball moments. Branca, who called the Giants' scheme the most despicable act in the history of the game, benefited greatly from the scheme, and it reminds me of a quote from baseball great Ernie Banks. In 1994, Cal Ripken Jr. broke Banks' record for most home runs by a shortstop. Instead of being sad or angry, Ernie Banks was delighted because, he said, quote, I'm extremely happy that he broke this record because it gives me a chance to come back and be remembered too. End quote. Even learning of and accepting the fact that Bobby Thompson probably cheated, Ralph Branca was able to remain in the spotlight year after year. He could complain, he could rant and rail, but he kept on showing up to the social gatherings, to the autograph signings. He kept on being remembered. In a fantastic article by Tom Jackman in the Washington Post, there's a photo of an elderly Ralph Branca standing next to an elderly Bobby Thompson. The two men hold up a black and white photo taken a week after the shot heard round the world. In the photo, the two smile with hands on each other. And while they both look happy, it seems like Branca's left hand is creeping up toward Thompson's throat. Life for Ralph Branca did not turn out exactly the way he'd have wished, but he was remembered. And for many people, that's all that matters. That's the show. You can find the podcast at my website, midnightlibraryofbaseball.com, and you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and a variety of other platforms. You can also find me on Instagram, at Midnight Library of Baseball, and on Facebook. The music is A Long Way by Sergi Pavkin at Pixabay. Good night.